1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Congo is a country beset by decades-old conflicts. But in the middle of it all, there's striking natural beauty. We visit a vast national park that's beefing up security, generating electricity, and providing new jobs in what should be a well-known tourist destination. And it seems like some languages are just needlessly difficult. All those cases and clauses and conditionals are, well, confusing. We look into new research that sheds light on why languages grow and shrink. But first, As it recovered from the financial crisis, America began more than 10 years of economic growth. But worrying signs, not least a bumpy week in the markets, have many concerned that the good times are coming to an end. The returns on bonds held for a short time are higher than returns for holding them for years. That inverted yield curve has in the past been a good predictor of a coming recession. As growth slows and the uncertainty over trade tensions remains, nervous investors are wondering if the next downturn is around
2: the corner. What we've seen in the markets this week is is a kind of continuation of what we've seen in recent weeks—a sort of growing anxiety about the global economy, linked to America's trade war with China. John O'Sullivan writes Buttonwood, our column on financial markets. We've seen investors pushing even further into the safest sort of assets, so government bonds. In Europe, that means that government bonds in Germany from Overnight cash rates to 30-year have now got negative interest rates on them. In Switzerland, bonds right out to 50 years have got negative interest rates. So there's a real pressure on and desire to own the safest kind of assets. The stock market has started to crack. We've seen a very big fall, 3% fall in one day in the S&P 500. So investors nervous even in equity markets and currency markets, it's generally been the sort of safe haven currencies, the dollar, the yen, the Swiss franc that have done well. And in commodity markets, we're seeing copper going down, continuing to go down, because that's a barometer of sort of the global economic cycle, the industrial cycle. And we've seen gold going up. So this sort of diversion, the safe things going up, the cyclical things going down. And that's more or less been the trend right across the markets.
1: So a bunch of manifestations of anxiety, as you say, are anxious
2: about what? Anxious about the global economy, and and I think it's worth giving a bit of context here because there's immediate things to worry about and there's reasons to worry generally. America's had its longest expansion ever. It's more than 10 years now. And economists will tell you that expansions don't die of old age. So there's a sort of general feeling that this has gone on for quite long. Isn't it about time we've had a recession? And that's not necessarily a terribly rational feeling, but it's there. And the second source of anxiety is that if we do have a recession, there's not a whole lot of ammunition we've got to fight it. Because interest rates right across the world, even in America, are actually pretty low relative to history. So there isn't there isn't a whole lot of interest rate cuts you can put in place to arrest a recession. And fiscal policy, so tax cuts and more government spending, very difficult to mobilize that in a timely way when you hit a recession. And it requires going through Congress going through legislatures, all the rest of it, it takes time. People disagree about whether it's going to work. So there's a feeling generally that if we do have a recession, we we'll not be able to fight it. So those two things are the, are the context. And on top of that, now you've got the trade war.
1: And so you think then that all this anxiety is justified?
2: I think the anxiety about the trade war, the fact that that's building, that is justified. So if you go back to 2018, it started with tariffs on a few industrial metals, steel and aluminium. And it's slowly built into a thing that's touching lots of parts of economic life. So it turned from a trade war into a tech war. Now it's tariffs on all sorts of goods. It's uh, prescriptions occasionally, in the case of Huawei, on who you can deal with. And the feeling is that the tentacles of this thing is spreading. And when you're not sure about how far this goes, businesses tend to be very wary about doing investment. And what we've seen over the last year is that business investment has pretty much at best stood still, and it probably is now falling. So businesses are cautious. That has an impact on the overall economy. And the trade war itself seems to be escalating. So the concern is that things get worse, and that businesses become ever more cautious to a point where a recession becomes a very real risk.
1: So the anxiety is just a manifestation of uncertainty.
2: At the moment, yes, very much so. I think it's very much limited to businesses for the time being. Consumers are relatively confident. Jobs are plentiful. No one's getting laid off. In the American economy, there's still lots of uh, job vacancies. Wages have gone up. The fact that the oil price is coming down, even though it's a signal that demand in the business world is, is coming off, it's actually quite a good thing for US consumers. So it hasn't touched... The sort of bulk of the economy yet, which is the consumer. The concern is that as companies get more and more anxious, instead of just cutting back on their stocks, instead of cutting back on investment, they start looking at their payrolls and saying, do we really need this many people? At that point, it starts to touch the consumer. We're not there yet, but people are clearly worried about that.
1: So might it be then that fears of a recession, the reaction to those fears actually bring the recession about more quickly?
2: Look, I think the anxieties that businesses have are genuine anxieties. You don't want to put up a plant somewhere and then find that that country that you've put the plant up with is suddenly subject to tariffs or restrictions on doing business with that country. So I think it's entirely rational that if you can put on hold any kind of irreversible big business decision, you will do so. I don't think people are talking themselves into fear. Given where we started at the trade war and given where we've got to, I think it's entirely rational for companies to be cautious.
1: And those reactions and that dynamic is what we've seen before in in economic cycles past?
2: We haven't seen anything quite like this, I don't think, because this is not a sort of internal dynamic from the economy that you've got some part of the economy that's overspending. Say, in the mid-2000s, you've got this big housing boom and suddenly there's no building anymore and that has an impact on the economy and then knock-on effects for (laughs) banks and so on or in the late 1990s when you had a lot of investment in information technology and in TMT companies and all the rest of it, and then you roll back suddenly from that. So it's not something that's coming internally. This is something that's been essentially policy-driven, which I think is actually rather unusual, where the United States is prosecuting a trade war against one of its biggest trading partners, and that's having an impact on businesses. That's a little bit different than the normal business cycle dynamics.
1: So what should we be looking out for to see how it plays out from here?
2: Well, first of all, obviously, the trade negotiations themselves and signs of is there a deal coming isn't there. And I think one of the big concerns that people have now is that the longer it goes on, actually, the harder it becomes to actually make a deal. So if Donald Trump turned around tomorrow and said, we're going to have a deal, China may go, well, maybe this deal doesn't stick. Maybe we should stick this this war out and see what happens in the American elections next November if we're still dealing with the same guy. So that's a genuine concern, which is, can you actually end this in a sort of satisfactory and clean way? That's one thing to look out for. The other thing I think is to look in the bond market, but the market for corporate bonds. And that's because companies in America have got lots of debts and they've borrowed a lot of money, mostly to give dividends and and share buybacks to their shareholders. But it does mean that they are sensitive to a sudden rise in borrowing costs. And if the bond markets get very, very nervous, what tends to happen is they go more into the safest assets and they shun riskier assets like corporate bonds Corporate bond yields then start to go up and the borrowing costs of indebted companies rise and then they've got a real thing they have to deal with, which is they've got more money going out the door to service debt and less money that they can use for capital investment and for, for payrolls and so on. So I think the corporate bond market is the one thing in the markets really to watch.
1: One way or another, this does end in recession and, and possibly quite a widespread one, I suppose. You mentioned that the reactions, the tools in policymakers' hands aren't there as they have been in the past. How will that play out when it happens?
2: There will be a recession. I'm 100% sure about that. When it happens and what causes it, you know, that's still open. If this gets worse, the risks of it grow, clearly. So this is not set in stone yet. There are people who think it is, but I'm, I'm not one of them. You could suddenly get a credible deal that people believe in being announced in the next few months, and you get a rally in all the risky assets that have been sort of under pressure recently. In terms of the ammunition to deal with a recession when it does come, yes, there isn't a whole lot you can do in terms of cutting interest rates, particularly in Europe, where interest rates are already negative. So the obvious thing is actually to use fiscal policy in some way. We've got used to the idea that there are real constraints on using fiscal policy, that governments don't want to do it, that it's actually difficult to persuade legislators to pass a fiscal stimulus bill. I'm a little bit sceptical of that. Governments tend to like spending money, they tend to like doing tax cuts and all the rest of it. So I don't think the barriers to fiscal stimulus are sort of insuperable. So I'm a bit less pessimistic in the near term about the ability to deal with a recession. The longer term concern might be that that all goes too far, but that's not a concern we have right now.
1: John, thanks very much for your time.
2: You're very welcome, Jason.
1: Congo is a vast, politically fragile country currently making headlines for battling an Ebola epidemic. Last year, a new president was installed following a rigged election and bloodthirsty militias control much of the country. But there are some beautiful places too, including a huge national park. To keep functioning when the government is so weak, the park has to take on responsibilities usually handled by the state.
0: I went to Virunga National Park, which is Africa's oldest park and is stunningly beautiful.
1: Olivia Ackland reports from Congo for The Economist.
0: There are three large volcanoes, there's a huge lake. So I went there because although it's stunningly beautiful, it doesn't attract as many tourists as it should because it's also dangerous and riddled with armed militia men. We took a little flight, a little sort of four-seater aeroplane, a Cessna plane, over the park, and you looked down and you could see the, the river, you could see hippos lying on a little island in the middle of the river, this vast savanna and mountains in the northern part of the park. It's one of the most biodiverse parks in the world. Elephants, hippos, buffalo, the largest number of different bird species in the world, and the mountain gorilla. There are only two places in the world that have mountain gorillas, which are they're very endangered, and Virunga is one of them.
1: But you say it's not getting the, the, the tourist trade that, that, it, that it should have with all of that?
0: No. So some people are understandably nervous to go to Virunga because it's in a very troubled part of eastern Congo. There are lots of different armed militia groups hiding within the park.
3: It's been extremely difficult, um, six of our rangers were killed last year.
0: To understand more about this, I spoke to Emmanuel de Merode, who is a Belgian prince and the park director. So it's
3: in a region that's been characterised by a very tragic history, defined by armed conflict, by violence. It's on the borders between Congo and two neighbouring countries which have had a very difficult history in the past. It's improved recently. But Varungo is really captured in the middle of all of that.
0: Mr. De Moreau said that one of the problems is that people are not allowed to farm inside the park, but it has very fertile volcanic soil.
3: More than 4 million people live within a day's walk of the park boundary.
0: So it's difficult to try and keep the local population out of the park because, understandably... Uh, People want to want to farm, they want to make money.
1: So, so what did you learn about the, the effort to try to change things to, to, to fix the park?
0: One of the big efforts to fix the park is to beef up security. He took us to this underground security room, guarded by an impressive pack of dogs. Um,
1: the tracker dogs are bloodhounds. They, they're
3: used for trailing... Um poachers, or, you know, following a crime.
0: One of the things that they're doing is they have a guy who flies around in a microlight with a telescopic camera lens. And he zooms in and he sort of hangs out of the microlight and takes photos of the rebel groups from above so that the security team can monitor their movements. So they took us to this sort of James Bond-esque underground security room and showed us some of the photos that this guy in the microlite had captured. There was one picture of a rebel leader called Jotem pointing his gun at the microlight and shooting at the microlight. So as well as trying to improve the general security of the park, they're also trying to create livelihoods for people in order to stop impoverished local people living around the park from joining militias and poaching and illegally farming and chopping down trees. We went to this power plant that has been built on one of the rivers in the park and met the CEO of Virunga Energy, a man named Ephrem Balole. La de Mutwanga. Environ 1, and he told us that 10,000 people uh, uh, now have electricity. Uh, uh, 10, 000 personnes qui They've also used the electricity. This, this
2: electricity to power a soap factory.
0: Which is la providing 400 jobs. They've cleared a field where they're going to build a chocolate factory, which is going to create more jobs as well.
1: And as far as the people around the park, is 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 that working? Are these these measures, you know, are are livelihoods improving? Are people benefiting from this?
0: It seems so. So we headed to a town called Matwanga inside the park, which was sort of, it was a small town, but it was bustling with motorbike taxis, drivers, and there were various shops sort of blasting out music, which they wouldn't have been able to do, obviously, without uh, without the electricity generated by the power plant. And we spoke to a
3: barber, and he said that
0: before he would have to close his shop at six in the evening, and now he stays open until eleven. So business is much better thanks to the to the electricity from Varunga. I
1: mean, it's, it sounds as if these are, are positive steps. Do you, did you get the feeling that there will be enough in time? Is, is, is this, is this a, a sort of a, a turning point for the park?
0: I mean, I think the park's biggest challenge is security. And if, for, if for example, the Virunga Energy Project can uh, manage to encourage industry, manage to create a lot of jobs, then I think the security situation will improve drastically.
1: Given the security threats that face Virunga, should it be a tourist destination?
0: It definitely should be. I mean, Virunga is totally spectacular. You, I, I went, before my reporting trip, I went with my younger brother and we climbed the volcano. So you climb to the top of the volcano and you sleep in a little hut right at the summit and you can sit on the edge of this uh, sort of precipice and look into this lava lake of sort of bubbling lava. Um, and it's spectacular. Uh, you can see the mountain gorillas... You trek through the jungle for sort of two hours with these rangers chopping the bush with machetes in front of you. And you get, you, you, you sort of stumble upon a family of mountain gorillas with the children playing and swinging in the trees and the, the silverback sort of sitting looking uh, magnificent and fearsome. And it's, uh, no, it's totally spectacular.
1: Well, if I can ever get away from this microphone, I shall put it on the list of places I should visit. So you should Olivia, thanks for your time.
0: Thanks very much, Jason. She nish. She It
1: can be difficult trying to learn a new language. But if you're thinking about picking one up, you might want to avoid smaller languages spoken by fewer people.
3: If you get a small group of people creating a language, you'll have lots of just idiosyncrasies. You'll have nothing that's really rule-governed. Lane Green writes Johnson, our column about language. As you get bigger groups, they start to get more systematic. So if you've ever sat down to learn a foreign language as an adult, chances are you've had a textbook and you've looked at loads and loads of tables of rules, endings that go on verbs and endings that go on nouns and how to make plurals. You might have asked, where does that stuff come from? And some new research, essentially creating languages in a laboratory, gives us some insight into part of that process. So what do you mean by creating languages in a lab? So the researchers, this is in the Netherlands, had two kinds of groups, small groups of four and bigger groups of eight create languages in a lab. They had to describe some shapes moving around a screen, and they were told that their goal was to communicate accurately about what was going on with those shapes. Now, the smaller groups had the same number of interactions as the larger groups did in total, but because they were smaller, they dealt more with each other. They had what the researchers called more shared history. The larger groups had less shared history because there were more people. As a result, it turned out that the small groups came up with more idiosyncratic languages. In the larger group, there was less shared history between the different participants. And so what you instead got was something like incipient grammar. Words they created were constructed, had little hints as to meaning, and they were sort of systematic. A a certain consonant might mean that the shape was moving to the left, or a certain vowel might describe a certain kind of shape. Those were more systematic in the bigger groups because that systematicity was needed given that they had less shared history. So so what does that suggest to you, this this sort of small lab study? Well, as I say, if you ever sit there looking at all these rules in a language textbook, this gives you an idea of where they come from. You need some patterns to make a language learnable. If everything is completely idiosyncratic, then it's going to be usable only by a very small number of people who share a lot of interactions and who don't deal with the outside world much but as the language community grows it's efficient to have a couple of clues that are sort of systematic across the language making the rules learnable rather than having too many fuzzy quasi rules
1: so that suggests then if i open up my my russian textbook and i find all these rules and endings and what have you that they're they're essentially required for for the for the transfer of ideas
3: You might think yes and no so some rules are required to make a language systematic and therefore learnable But what languages also do is they keep building new rules, and they tend to build more rules than they actually need. And so this is where a second line of research comes in, which is how languages actually become simpler over time as well. How does that work? And like I say, lots of rules are not absolutely needed. And so when languages tend to spread through contact, like conquest, they tend to get simpler. So to give you an example, um, the Scandinavian languages spoken on the continent are Swedish, Danish, Norwegian, and they're all relatively easy to learn. They don't have a lot of these kind of endings that I was talking about, the kind that you find lots of in Russian or ancient Greek or Latin. But Icelandic, which is their very close cousin, has been isolated on an island in the North Atlantic for a thousand years, and a very small community of speakers, only about 300,000 people. As a result, Icelandic has kept a lot of that grammar that has simply gone by the wayside, as the continental Scandinavians have conquered one another and conquered other territories and have had immigrants coming in and so forth. And I think that the fact of isolation in the small community is what has kept a lot of the complexity in Icelandic that you don't see in Danish or Swedish. So in a nutshell, the bigger the
1: language, the more spread the language, the simpler it tends to be.
3: That's right. So I think the new research we talked about says how some of the languages get built up, how they create those rules... But they tend to create too many, and then as the language becomes even bigger still, you start to pare back some of the unnecessary ones. We have a bit of a a cycle, the creation and the destruction of rules. Lane, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence, If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, and you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here on Monday. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero.